0: listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi Michelle. Hey Sarah. And welcome to episode 106 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. Today we get a report from the picket lines and the movement for single-payer healthcare with National Nurses United's Jean Ross. But first, the news. This Sunday, a crackdown on protests by teachers of the National Coordination of Education Workers, CNTE, who are the leaders of the independent teachers movement within Mexico's National Union of Education Workers, SNTE, in Oaxaca, left nine dead and injured 53 civilians and some number of police. The protests were part of an ongoing battle against education reform in Mexico. Some of this will sound familiar, but... That includes the testing of teachers, merit-based pay and promotions, and the mass firing of teachers. Mexico's normal schools, the teacher education schools, have often been sites of both upward mobility and radicalization for Mexico's working class. So, of course, they are a target of this education reform policy. They have also been the targets of state violence. Most recently, you may have heard of Ayotzinapa, where 43 normalistas were disappeared. Protests have been escalating for years around education, teacher strikes, and crackdowns by the state that eventually led to the firing of 3,000 teachers this May and the arrest of union leaders under allegations of money laundering and other things that the teachers argue are unsubstantiated charges. Parker Asman at In These Times writes, quote, "'What's more, reports have surfaced from the Mexican outlet Sin embargo, claiming that local hospitals have been closed to the public and are only being used to treat wounded police officers.' Local reporters have also claimed to be directly targeted by police for taking video and shooting photographs of the clashes. The Mexican Human Rights Commission lists a local reporter of the newspaper El Sur del Istmo as one of the people killed thus far. English-language reporting on this situation has been pretty sparse, but a story at Telesur English said that some 200,000 doctors and nurses planned to join a national strike on June 22nd. The doctors, the report said, face the consequences of state repression, caring for the victims of violence, and face neoliberal reforms of their own profession. It is easy, of course, to look at the situation in Mexico and assume it has nothing to do with what we face here, but the similarity of the reforms that the teachers are battling should give us all pause.
1: As college grows less affordable for many of us, students have turned to essentially the payday lenders of higher education. For-profit colleges like University of Phoenix and Corinthian schools have made a killing off of deeply indebted students by roping them into subpar diploma mill programs. And just as the big banks collapsed a few years ago, so too now goes the higher ed speculative bubble. It's now bursting, but many former students, unfortunately, have been left holding the bag, along with their totally worthless diplomas as their schools have gone under. So there have been legal investigations and lawsuits, but only now has the Department of Education finally moved to make those former students whole in a meaningful sense by canceling their ballooning student loan debts. So despite a cascade of fraud scandals in recent years, Many for-profit schools have avoided legal liability through these so-called enrollment contracts, and that's at the heart of the new regulation that the Department of Education just rolled out. These contracts often continue to block uh, former students' access to civil courts by forcing people with financial disputes into mandatory arbitration proceedings. These are corporate-controlled extrajudicial processes that tend to be pretty well stacked for the corporation rather than the complainant. And, you know, if your diploma ended up being a subpar program that didn't lead to anything and has left you thousands of dollars in debt, uh, that's a pretty big legal grievance. Uh, But as long as you are bound by this forced arbitration clause, your case is then shunted into a corporate controlled uh, mediation program uh, with a third party agent that's basically been appointed by the company, and as you might guess, the process is pretty much rigged against you. So the Department of Education, because it has a stake in protecting the loan funds of these former students, has moved to uh, restrict the use of these forced arbitration clauses. Um, The new rules complement a parallel effort by the Department of Education to expand an obscure legal mechanism known as defense to repayment as the primary legal channel to provide loan forgiveness to aggrieved former students of schools like Corinthian. The Department of Education now promises to expand the process to grant discharges uh, to groups of victims of the scandal-ridden for-profit schools, but relief so far has been halting, and many still complain that the process is too bureaucratic and essentially unfair to students. Since the rule would cover institutions benefiting from federal direct loan funds, a crucial spigot for for for-profit colleges and trade schools, advocates say that this might likely change the contracting practices throughout the industry would not completely bar such arbitration clauses, however, if they are so cleverly written as to deceive students into signing away their right to sue without them really knowing it. And uh, if you've ever really skimmed through 400 pages of legalese when signing a contract with a financial services company, you kind of know how easy it is to do that. Meanwhile, former students with the Debt Collective, which is the anti-student debt movement, uh, are still angry. They continue to campaign for a more inclusive, more streamlined, uh, and more transparent process for getting financial relief through the Department of Education. Rather than relying on individual students to come forward with claims, um, they think that the Department of Education can be doing a lot more to essentially say, okay, Corinthian schools and these other chain schools have all gone under, these students are... Uh, entitled to some wholesale form of relief. So where the movement goes from here uh, is yet to be seen, but uh, this is a sign of progress. And as those for-profit schools go under, now the challenge is figuring out a way to start a new political conversation about making college free and accessible for all.
0: We have, of course, talked about teachers' work plenty already on this podcast. We have talked about labor and particularly teachers' labor in North Carolina a few times recently on the show, both with the Durham, North Carolina teachers in episode 98, who were organizing to protect their students from deportation, and with Eric Fink in episode 102. Last week, teachers and their allies in the state held a 23-mile protest march from Durham and North Raleigh to the state capitol, where 14 of them were arrested, blocking a downtown intersection. The group had wanted to meet with Governor Pat McCrory, but when they arrived at the Capitol, they found the doors locked and decided to sit in in the street. Obviously, we're not getting the governor's attention. He was last night at a fundraiser for Donald Trump catering to the wealthiest 1%, said Todd Warren, a Spanish teacher from Greensboro, who was one of the protest organizers. The teachers are decried the crumbling conditions in their schools, describing cockroaches in the halls and broken toilets in the bathrooms, while the state pours money into vouchers for private schools and charter schools. They criticize the closing of public schools and takeover by the state and other moves that are straight out of, you guessed it, the corporate education reform playbook that longtime belabored listeners are probably pretty familiar with by now. They decried the fact that the state spends over $2,000 less per student than the national average. The protesters were part of Organize 2020, a group that is sponsored by the North Carolina Association of Educators. The group released a report card last week that gave McCrory F grades in subjects like provided sufficient funding for public education secured a living wage for our students' families, and protected our students from discrimination and criminalization. They also demanded that the governor accept the Medicaid expansion money from the federal government as uh, part of the Affordable Care Act, and of course repeal HB2, the infamous anti-trans, anti-gay and lesbian, anti-worker bill that we discussed with Eric Fink. Governor McCrory is up for re-election this year and tried to paint the protest as part of his Democratic opponent's campaign, but the teachers rejected that analysis. We will, of course, keep you updated on what's going on in North Carolina, and if we have any listeners who are in North Carolina, particularly teachers in North Carolina, we would love to hear from you.
1: Two new studies on early childhood education teachers show how critical as well as how undervalued early childhood programming is, especially for poor kids. And the problem is often that, surprise, surprise, teachers are often very poor themselves. And not surprisingly, the early education workforce is also among the most diverse in the country. And sadly, this is often uh, correlated highly with extremely low wages for this sector. Um, The new study that I write about in The Nation uh, this week uh, notes a new Century Foundation publication that talks about the working conditions and how they affect the child's learning experience and how they affect the performance of the teacher. So just as economic instability can cause stress, depression, and distraction, the researchers write, economic stability is an important factor in enabling employees to show up to work energized, engaged, and present, and of course that goes for every workplace, but especially one where you put your most precious asset, your kids. The treatment of these educators, it should be noted, reflects racial disparities across the workforce, and early childhood teachers are, uh, quote, disproportionately women of color compared to other parts of the workforce and the broader education industry, according to the Century Foundation, and yet, uh, while, you know, this system of educational disparity is reflecting the overall devaluation of the labor of people of color, Uh, diversity could be invested in as an educational asset, especially for toddlers who are, uh, for their first time, in an out-of-home care setting. And uh, many toddlers who grow up in, say linguistically isolated households may benefit from a more diverse K through12 setting, or more broadly from you know a more diverse workforce in which they can find a teacher who uh, you know speaks their language, knows their culture, and has something in common with them. And uh, this kind of diversity has been shown in studies. Uh, Uh, to uh, prove to have measurable impacts on student achievement. For instance, teachers of color, uh, according to one study, are quote, more likely to hold high expectations of students of color. Of course, there's also a huge disparity within preschool programs that hurts children of color too. Educational racial inequality shades into negative social outcomes like disproportionate degrees of discipline that are meted out to black preschool children as opposed to other preschool students. And on the flip side, investing in preschool education would help both teachers and children of color. Children who attend high-quality preschool are more likely to graduate from high school, go on to college, etc., etc. So uh, it's an old story. We hear it over and over again, but sometimes it really helps to hammer it home. Children are a worthy investment, and their teachers are too. Now we have a conversation with Jean Ross. She is co-president of National Nurses United. She is a registered nurse based in Minnesota, and she is out on strike today. And She's here to talk to us about what the workers are demanding at the picket line and also to talk about the economic justice agenda that the nurses are pushing on a national level.
0: Uh,
2: the nurses in Minnesota, through Minnesota Nurses Association, which is a division of National Nurses United, are on strike, 5,000 nurses.
1: Okay, so explain uh, why the nurses are striking today and what prompted the union to make this move, um, especially with this particular group of hospitals that you're targeting.
2: Well, we have kind of a unique situation here in the Twin City area, Minneapolis-St. Paul. We have several systems that bargain with our nurses all at the same time, many facilities. So most of the systems came to us in december of last year and said we think things are going okay how about if we just open the contract to talk about wages this time around and leave the rest of the contract intact as it is and the nurses talked it over and they said that would be fine well we approached the alina system which is the one where the nurses are on strike now and said the other systems to your hospital association wanted to do this and we think the good idea are you and they said no their plan was to try to reduce the number of health care plans that they offer their employees the nurses have been able to hold on to the good plans that alina has offered for years and years mm-hmm. through their contracts and they weren't about to give it up now and go to plans that in the long run are more costly because they may not have higher deductibles But you end up paying more in co-pays and premiums.
1: And so what are the key demands that are on the table right now as you move forward with the talks or move, try to move out of the impasse?
2: Well, um, the nurses told the employer that since they did want to open up the whole contract, fine, we will look at insurance, making sure we keep it or possibly make it better. And also look at things that they have been trying to discuss for some time, indeed, at all the hospitals here, which is a level of safe staffing, in other words, nurse-to-patient ratios, and some kind of a plan that they are supposed to have in place for, for example, workplace violence, because we did get a workplace violence law put into place recently, and not all the hospitals have complied with having their... Uh, programs, their plans set up so that everyone knows, including the nurses, that it's in place and what to do.
1: Um, and I understand that there are other uh, strikes that NNU has lined up um, in Massachusetts and California. Can you talk about what this has in common with the labor actions there, um, how you're coordinating, if at all, and um, you know why this is sort of a national fight as well?
2: Well, the issues, no matter where you go across the country, are the same, indeed around the world, I the same. That's why we have Global Nurses United. But in Massachusetts and in L.A. in particular, it's, again, about safe staffing, having an adequate number of nurses there, safe patient handling because nurses are getting injured on the job. There was a strike in Watsonville also in California and that I hear has just been settled. So the nurses at Kaiser in L.A. will be going out tomorrow, I believe. There is a day strike and I think the one in Massachusetts begins on the 27th if I'm not mistaken
1: what's been the public reaction um, at, at the local level um, how has the community responded to the strike and you know what what uh,
2: what kind of reception have you guys been getting on the picket line oh it's wonderful reception here in in uh, Minneapolis and st Paul and indeed the suburbs where the other Alina facilities are striking lots of honking uh, lots of you get them guys, that's enough greed, meaning the hospitals. Yes. I would imagine it's not unanimous, usually issues aren't. The patients themselves have been very supportive. A couple of patients were crying. I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't trust new people, I don't know. And that, that's hard because it's a really hard decision to make when you're forced to strike. Um, but the public support has been pretty overwhelming. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Right. Obviously, you know, when when nurses go on strike, it's different than walking out of a factory or even a restaurant. Um, The patients still need care. Mm -hmm. So tell us about some of the considerations that go into calling the strike and why it's still important to do so.
2: Well, you know, we have this thing. If your
0: nurses are on the outside, there's definitely
2: something wrong on the inside Yeah, because we don't take it lightly. We I mean, it is our job to uh care for the patients. I know that the employer always says, we do too. That's our job. But truthfully, with the for profit corporate driven healthcare system we have in this country, that isn't true. Their main job is to protect the bottom line and to look at profits. Whereas ours is to care for and advocate for the patient. Right. So when it becomes difficult to impossible for us to do that, and then we really do have to take a stance. And that's why I say when we are on strike, we are forced into it. There is no other way. If we believed there were another way, we would be using it. So when it comes to, for example, the demands here in the Twin Cities for the healthcare um, plans that they now have, these are healthcare plans that are not inexpensive by any means. Right. But the nurses have been able to keep up with them, and they are satisfied with them as they are. We wish. That all people in this country could have plans as we do in fact when the hospital said for ease of administration they wanted to offer the same plans to the rest of the employees uh, as the nurses have in other words they'll all be on the same plan the nurses said fine go back return to these plans give them to all your employees we're all about helping everybody else it doesn't have to be exclusively reserved for us and of course the employer said no we don't want to do that it's in essence what I would call a race to the bottom, go to the lowest common denominator. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to let ourselves down. You talk about, uh, you know, when you fly on a plane, what do they tell you? Put your mask on first. Take care of yourself so you can take care of others. And that is indeed what we intend to do.
1: Just to be clear, uh, this is a private hospital chain you're talking
2: about? It is. It is. It's a uh, not-for-profit private hospital chain. However, we, you know, in Minnesota, all we have is not for profits and we don't really see the operation running any differently than the private for-profits across the country, right? The mantra is the same. It's the bottom line. Right. And of
1: so-called race to the bottom, as you point out. Um, so related to nurses' healthcare care plans, I mean, you talk about how there's this continual effort to squeeze, uh, you know, the, the good that you've managed to eke out in your uh, past contracts. Um, talk about what it means and how ironic it is, perhaps, that you have healthcare workers who are struggling to secure their own healthcare. Um, what does that say about the overall sustainability of our current healthcare system? When the workers on the front lines providing the care, um, you know, are are actually struggling uh, to stay healthy themselves, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. you know, what, what what do you what do you say to, to patients who are viewing it from the other side? Well,
2: that's exactly right. In fact, uh, it's funny when you ask about the public support or not, and the patients, they actually still believe, um, because it's, it's been a, a rumor for years, that nurses enjoy paid-for health insurance, that it's free. We, Because we work in hospitals, we don't have to pay for it. So if they are actually kind of shocked when they find out that, indeed, we do pay for it, and in, in fact, more than any others and that we have to fight every day to keep what we have bargained in our contract because they're continually trying to take it away. You do want your nurses to be healthy. You know, we've talked about uh, sick care for traditional groups of workers who have never had it. For example, people who work in the food service industry, you want those people to be healthy. Well, you certainly want your nurses to be healthy. And if they become injured or ill, you want them back on the job as soon as possible. You don't want them infecting patients, and you want them at their peak. And when you have to worry about things like co-pays and uh, going to only that system's physicians and health care groups when you would prefer to go to your own doctor because it'll cost you an arm and leg, according to the Alliance Health Insurance uh, Programme, then um, you're not going to do it. And that puts you in the same position as some of our public who really don't have the best health care.
1: And related to the health issue, aside from just overall sustained care... You talked about the immediate sort of risks of injury and, uh, you know, workplace safety issues. How does that fold into the healthcare picture for healthcare workers? And what should people know about how physically demanding uh, and, and of course, mentally demanding uh, the job of nursing actually mm-hmm. is from day to day?
2: Right. I think a lot of people don't realize that. I think. If you've been fortunate enough to not be in the hospital and not have a loved one in the hospital, you may not have seen nurses working as they do now. We do not sit at a desk and uh, fulfill doctor orders. We are titrating drips, I mean, there's, of course, an immense amount of uh, science and math that you need to know. Our jobs are difficult, and they are demanding, but they're also very, very rewarding. And what is so bothersome to us, what is so hard to deal with, is the fact that the employers have this attitude of, well, yes, we'd like to give you more health, and we know that according to your licensure and what you say is safe, you know, you should have more staffing. We want you to just do the best that you can. And that's not okay because that's when people get hurt. That's when people die. And that's actually when nurses and other healthcare workers also get hurt. Okay. So um, the kinds of things that we do, uh, for example, the highest back, injury rate in the country it's nurses and nurses aides orderlies and that's not necessarily because we try to lift or help someone that was too heavy but it's years and years and years of what we call micro injuries to our muscles and um and to our discs little teeny tiny tears every time you try to help a person pull them up in bed because they've slid to the foot this kind of thing over time injures you yeah And so those are the kinds of things that uh, we try to prevent, and we do indeed have ways of preventing them. But again, the hospitals do not always cooperate. Either they don't have the lift equipment that we need, or it's in such an inconvenient space that nurses and others don't take the time to run get them because their need for the patient is immediate to run to another floor or down several hallways to get the equipment. They just don't do.
1: Right. Um, You talked about, like, sort of chronic injuries over time. Is that something that's readily treatable through workers' comp, or how how do you deal with that when you're trying to, like, prove that your job basically injured you over the course of, like, 10 years?
2: Well, I will tell you that with the advent of the MRI, it's become easier, because before that, if you couldn't point to an x-ray or a blood test, it's all in your head, you know. There's nothing there to substantiate your claim. Now, thank goodness, it's easier. But the fact remains, some of us who have been in this profession for years, I myself have worked for over 40 years, um, but I've also had to counsel young, young nurses in their early 20s who put their heart and soul and money into a college education to become a nurse, and they will never, ever be able to work in the hospital again. They will have to do if They're lucky another type of nursing. And then there's the going home to your family and knowing your back will never be the same again that there's little to nothing they can do for you, even after surgeries. Yeah. It's no
1: wonder that um, turnover is an issue with those kinds of working conditions. Um, Going back to the issue of staffing ratios, um, I know that uh, Minnesota and, of course, California have been at the forefront of the battle for safe staffing ratios. Um, I know California has Mm -hmm. legislation in place. Um, What's the state of the debate in Minnesota, and how do you hope your action today is going to fold into that?
2: Well, we hope, of course, we'll move closer toward, if you can't get it legislatively, we've always said we will try through bargaining, through our contracts, and through the legislature. And you might not know, but the last time around at the legislature here in Minnesota, and before that, they tried to pass the buck saying, well, they're unionized, they have contracts, you should get it through your contract. But what we're trying to tell the legislators is we have never been able to achieve that. So we still push forward for legislation at the state level and the federal level and we try to bargain it into our contracts. So hopefully it'll move it a little bit forward, but they're very, very stubborn. Again, it, it amounts to who's in control here. And when you when you have a license that dictates how you practice, what is safe and what isn't, that's on you. That's on your conscience as a nurse. And it's on your license as a nurse. All we ask is to be able to do our job so that if I show up for work and they say, "Gene, today instead of your normal patients of three to four, patient load of three to four, you're going to have to take five because somebody called them sick and either they say they can't replace them or they don't want to because it costs money. Just do the best you can. That needs to be incumbent upon them also. They need to be responsible for that. It's their job to staff the hospital
0: not the nurses. So NNU has, of course, also been in the forefront of calling for single-payer health care for a very long time. Now that it's been yeah. a campaign plank for a high-profile presidential candidate, where do you think the fight goes next? And what's the role of shop floor action from nurses in fighting for it?
2: Well, uh, the shop floor question is is, is a good one. Yeah. Um, we have all kinds of things we need to talk about. There's almost nothing we haven't tried yet. <laughs> but I think... Uh, if you look at the Bernie Sanders campaign, it has done so much good. And in particular, with respect to the issue of single-payer Medicare for all, it's brought it to the forefront. I mean, we know as nurses, we travel across the country even before Bernie threw had it in the ring. Right. And I talked to people, we knew, we could tell you anecdotally, people in this country are ready for it. Even Republicans,
0: right.
2: even hardcore right-wingers, they understand. If for no other reason that... It's truly the most affordable way of taking care of health care. Yeah. So people are ready for it. And I think it, it did them good to see, you know, uh, a public figure, Senator Sanders, stand up there and say, look, it, here, there is money. This is how we pay for it. This is how we do it. And most of them understand uh, the issue of paying for it through some type of tax right. and saving them money in the in the long run. And that it is universal. Everybody will be covered.
0: This weekend, NNU, of course, hosted the People's Summit, where supporters of Bernie Sanders got together to discuss what happens next in that movement. Um, Can you talk about the role that nurses and NNU have played in that campaign and what you hope comes out of it? Well, I would say that, you know, what do you hear very often?
2: This is bad in this country. That's bad in this country, including healthcare. And uh, somebody ought to do something. And I think nurses are the somebody. I mean, when someone says that, it's just like, well, we better do it. Nobody else seems to be. So um, for some time, as you say, we have been in the forefront of looking for something like single payer. And Bernie Sanders' issues are our issues. We had what we call our Main Street Campaign for America. We learned a long time ago as nurses when people would say, what are nurses doing, you know, rallying for this and that. what does that have to do with nursing? Well, it has everything to do with nursing, yeah. because these issues are public health issues. Right. All of these are public health issues. Right. So here we have a man who is willing to spearhead all of the ideas that nurses care so much about because we care for the public. That we just went with it. There is a very good reasons for nurses to be at the forefront. We have been thanked so many times, both at the People's Summit and by strangers on the streets. If you wear any kind of paraphernalia that indicates you're a nurse or they know about your organization because they see it on your shirt or in a bag, they'll stop you, you know, complete strangers and say, thank you, almost as if you were a veteran. Thank you for your service. Thank you for what you're doing for us. And uh, we do it gladly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I always uh, think of the, the surveys that show that nurses are like the most trusted profession in the country. Way um, more than well,
2: politicians.
1: I
0: well, exactly. They, they tend to rank sort sort of
2: in the bottom there. Um, the, and we we uh, we knew that when we went across the country, you know, on our big red Bernie bus. Right. In fact, that's what the shrink wrap said. The most trusted profession trusts Bernie, and people do want to know why. Yeah. And so I think we were able to get uh, education out to so many people, um, telling them that regardless of who ends up being president. These are things you should expect as an American citizen. Yeah. People in this country, people across the world deserve this. And that's why we continue to work to make sure that it happens. Yeah, And it yeah. will. Yeah.
0: Yeah. At the People's Summit, um, Naomi Klein talked about the role of nurses and care workers in the fight against climate change. Uh, can you talk about this mm-hmm. and the, the particular role that, again, that nurses and that NNU have played in that fight? We already
2: have so many disorders and diseases that we are battling that have been around for generations. We don't need new ones. (laughs) And indeed, diseases that have been around but have traditionally been in another part of the globe Mm. and have been able to be kept there and at bay because of help from us and things that that country has done with its excellent nurses and doctors, that's all going to be changed. And indeed, you see that changing. And it has to do with the fact that the policies that we've had in place in this country and in others, anywhere you have a multinational corporation, the deforestation, for example, it's going to continue to take away habitat from animals, insects, etc. that stayed in their own little zone and now have to search farther and farther for their habitat. These things are going to eventually come to humans. And when you look at the state of that kind of thing, and then the, the bigger storm due to the climate crisis, uh, the fact that we are going to be called upon more and more often, to do things like we do through our RnRN RN program, where we send people in to, you know, the aftermath of hurricanes, tornadoes, um, typhoons. Um, that it's going to be taking more and more of a toll on healthcare workers everywhere, uh, and obviously on the public too. We we just see more and more of the disorders that even we had, like asthma. We didn't see the in the incidence of asthma in younger and younger children and in larger and larger areas of the population. And that has to do with pollution and that has to do with climate change.
0: Yeah. After all of that about how much people trust nurses, um, the news came out that NNU's executive director, Roseanne DeMoro, was nominated for the Democratic Party Platform Committee by Senator Sanders and was rejected. And there are no labor representatives on the committee. And there was, this yeah. was a big deal that not only they didn't want uh, Roseanne, but they didn't want labor. Um, so what do you think, I guess, what do you think they didn't want to hear from her or from labor in general? In particular, I believe they don't want
2: to hear about sickle or Medicare for all. Yeah. I think that's, that's the biggest one. But for many other reasons, I mean, this platform that we have had that Bernie Sanders has had yeah. is, is attractive to those of us who work for a living, the 99 percenters. And so, yeah, isn't it ironic that you don't want labor out there? Most of the people in this country have to work for a living. We do not sit around our pool cashing our dividend checks. So I would think you would want to hear from us, and you know what? Even if you don't, we are going to continue to say it. They got an earful while we were helping with Bernie Sanders' campaign, and we're not going to stop. Yeah. So whether we are on that particular platform or not, they are going to hear because people have had enough. Yeah, Bernie always said, "Enough is enough." Yeah, that's where we're at.
0: Yeah, and so finally. NNU has also been organizing around the financial transaction tax for a very long time. And so if Mm -hmm. we see nothing else in this election cycle, we've seen that people are still angry at Wall Street. They're angry at inequality. Do you think that there's possibility for new momentum around a financial transaction tax and what kinds of things could be done with that money?
2: Oh, absolutely.
0: There has been, even before this uh,
2: campaign, um, and other countries have come to it sooner than we have, but we're all we're all in it together. All of the groups that are like minded for this Robin Hood tax that uh, you know we and others have put forward. And what it can do is most of the things that, uh, for example, Senator Sanders talked about on his platform. So you look at free education, you look at uh, disease, you look at AIDS. You could, with a portion, just a portion, a tiny portion of the three hundred a billion per year. Completely wipe out AIDS. We have been assured of that by the experts. You could wipe out AIDS on this planet. What a wonderful thing. And still have money left over. So you've got your free education. You do have universal health care. You've got a good quality education. You make sure that nobody is out on the street, that you have a roof over your head. And stop talking about taking away people's defined benefit pensions. And make sure that everybody else has one too. You say you don't think that Social Security can be the be-all and end-all, that people need something else. It was supposed to be originally part of a three-legged stool, right? Your savings, yeah. the retirement you had through your employer, and then Social Security. Well, fine. Then these up the others and stop attacking Social Security. All those things can be achieved. And most of it with the Robin Hood attacks.
0: That was Jean Ross of National Nurses United, and now we were just talking with Ross about the People's Summit where I spent the weekend, and we bring you an excerpt from National Nurses United Executive Director Roseanne DeMauro's opening speech at that conference.
3: Social and economic inequality, including racial and climate justice, affects each of us in our country. Uh, Of course, not the privileged, who have extreme control over our political system, creating and perpetuating a system of exploitation that's predicated upon private profit and greed. Neoliberal policies, which began in the 1970s, ripped away at the heart of our country and made everything for sale through deregulation, privatization, and austerity measures. They made our health, our education, and even our parks and sports arena commodities to be bought and sold. Thus, even our leisure became commodities. Here's what's. Here's the big thing, and everyone needs to know this because when we're out there and we're talking in the world, neoliberalism doesn't mean liberal, it means bad. <laughs> bad. But I personally think, personally, from my own perspective, liberals are usually bad too. <laughs> oh, I, got, I see, I got my family here. They usually sell you out basically when they, you think they're with you, so just beware. Um, but it's a goal. The goal of neoliberalism is to turn our nation into a giant market, to turn citizens and residents into apolitical consumers, and to replace civil and human rights with private property rights. In short, the architects of neoliberalism, including the corporations and the political class, armed the market against us. And unless it could make money, it was no longer valued. Good paying jobs were destroyed. Many aspects of our living became unaffordable, and working people were forced to exist on debt. Our lives became for sale. The thing that strikes me the most about neoliberalism is that corporations and the 1% redefine the concept of free. This is the thing that bothers me the most, I think. Free, to mean this, it's free means security, right? But the hostility, against the promise of Medicare for All, free public education, tuition, symbolizes how far we've sunk as a country. These are all now seen as commodities where they should have been basic human rights. In short, human rights have been perverted into a vilified entitlement. Once Wall Street took control of our country, and most of our politicians and institutions, they collectively turn their back on human suffering. But throughout history, oppression has always created resistance and struggle. And now we're at at a crucial, critical mass, and we're at a turning point in history.
0: That was National Nurses United Executive Director Roseanne DeMauro speaking at the People's Summit in Chicago last Friday. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. Julia Carey-Wong is a friend of the show and past guest talking to us about Google and gentrification in the Bay Area back on episode 43. She is now a full-time reporter at The Guardian covering similar issues, and she has a piece out this week titled, Fund It, Not Run It, Big Tech's Universal Basic Income Project Has Its Skeptics. Basic income has, as belabored listeners no doubt know, become a popular idea in recent years. Former SEIU head Andy Stern just released a book calling for it. While it's debated, hotly in labor circles, the tech industry in particular are big fans, and one tech company, Y Combinator, which Julia describes as Silicon Valley's premier startup incubator, is out to test its basic income theories in Oakland. As the Bay Area gentrifies with tech money, the question of what happens to the people who are already there, who don't have the money to keep up with skyrocketing rents and prices, continues to hover. But Oakland residents and organizers are not thrilled with the idea of tech capitalists experimenting on them. Don Phillips of Causa Justa, Just Cause, a housing and workers' rights organization in Oakland, told Julia, We agree strongly with the idea of a universal basic wage, and cited several types of work, like childcare and domestic work, that are traditionally unpaid. But, he added, The way in which we achieve social and economic change matters. If any entity is interested in doing something like this, it has to be done with the leadership of low-wage workers and low-wage worker organizations, people who are both most in touch with the needs of the community. They should fund it, he said of Y Combinator. They should not run it. The study plans to give up to 100 individuals what they term an amount of money that is sufficient to meet basic needs for six months to a year. The question, of course, is who decides what basic needs are and how much money fulfills them. On that level, the people of Oakland and the capitalists of Y Combinator might have very different ideas of what success looks like for this program. Julia interviewed Rob Reich, a Stanford professor who studies the ethics of philanthropy, not to be confused with the former labor secretary. He and he is cautiously optimistic about the system, calling basic income better than that other darling of tech philanthrop capitalists, education reform. But he has some warnings, too. Julia writes... Reich, who is critical of tech philanthropy that claims to want to improve the world, is not buying it, suggesting that the tech industry's interest in UBI is a play to, quote, get out in front of the political blowback that may come when technological innovation wipes away so many jobs that people are left without a way to earn a living wage. That's not to say it's a bad idea, he said. That's just to say it's not uninterested. In Oakland, Julia concludes, in 2016, there is no such thing as a free lunch.
1: And my pick is a somewhat schizoid pair of articles uh, from Jacobin Magazine giving both sides of an issue that I am somewhat divided on. It's the case for and against Brexit. There is a socialist case for Remain by David Renton, and there is simultaneously a socialist case for Leave um, by Neil Davidson. Should be noted also that I am recording this on the eve of the Brexit vote, so I do not know the results yet. Obviously, it's up to the Brits, and uh, it seems that whether you are for or against Brexit, the left seems to be squandering an opportunity to turn the debate into a productive dialogue on the future of Europe and the UK's position in it. So Lexit, that is the left version of Brexit is an idea that's gained traction among some leftists, some would uh, deem it the hard left position. They reject this supposed notion of lesser evilism when it comes to the referendum, and they believe that Britain should vote to leave the EU. Neil Davidson warns, it might be argued that some aspects of the EU could be subject to reform, but he writes, "...the mechanisms by which this could take place are never made clear. The dominant bodies in the EU are either unelected, like the central bank or the commission, or like the council, um, which consists mostly of government leaders from the member states who are elected by their own voters, but not by those of the EU as a whole, even though they are making decisions which affect it. So fundamentally, this is um, bad for democracy. Davidson goes on to argue, I do agree that the division on the left now isn't a straightforward reformist versus revolutionary one, although the overwhelming majority of the left on whatever side of the divide are supporting a remain position, remain meaning remaining in the EU. This, I Largely put down to the experience of defeat, Davidson argues, the ascendancy of neoliberalism was above all the defeat of the labor movement, at least on a temporary basis. Uh, David Renton, coming from the Remain side, and he calls himself a reluctant Remainer, is for Remain uh, for kind of the conventional leftist reasons. But in a way, what he says, I think, is more important than how he plans to vote. He says the naivete of, say, Labour's Remain position does not rest in seeing the EU, from the perspective of the working class in Britain in 2016, as a shield, rather it is located in a failure to say clearly that this is only one part of how the EU is experienced. The EU is also a device to encourage free trade between European states is also subject to a massive lobbying from the right, and there are parts of the EU which have been captured for austerity politics, so all that is not very promising. Uh, but what about voting for an exit because you think that uh, stirring a showdown would lead to a fundamental battle between opposing political polls in Britain and it would lead to a new political reality. It's more likely to this be a rejectionism that tacks in a more reactionary direction, Renton argues, since the right would feel empowered and vindicated, the left would look kind of incompetent. So um, he goes on to write, if the opening to a new situation of political instability has to come about through a big victory for the press, parties, and the people of the right, it is unlikely that the instability which follows will assist the left. And he goes on to note that uh, history has uh, reiterated this lesson again and again, uh, and that you know sometimes people think that the only class which struggles is the working class, but the petty bourgeois is a fighting class too. There's a whole long, finely worked out history of left theory, which explains what happens when social reactionaries begin to rage against a status quo, and of course we don't need to look to history, we see a lot of that happening on both sides of the pond. So what about the prospects for a new political reality? Um, Renton argues the idea is not that we accommodate to them, but that we defeat them and recreate different grounds of struggle and compel them to rally behind our banners there is a decisive exit victory, then this will be interpreted by politicians and by the public as a vote for the speeding up of austerity. And why should a victory for the right make life any easier for the rest of us? If I vote to stay, which I still have not decided to do, it will be because I have no desire to live in that stale fantasy of the 1950s Britain, which is at the end of the exit vote. He concludes that ultimately, if you believe in the view of human progress that has any uh, measure of faith in collectivity and communal struggles across national borders, then voting to reject the union across those borders means cutting yourself out of one kind of common political terrain that is accessible and for all its flaws is the hand that Britain and the rest of Europe has been dealt." Yes, it's inherently undemocratic, but pulling out means not just settling for the status quo, but actually settling for a more isolated status quo in which the left may clearly be already in retreat. That could, of course, be even more toxic um, if for nothing other than the sheer reason that it would limit the number of voices and eyes to which Britain's government shall be held accountable. So think about that for all of you who are not voting but are observing with a keen eye towards what. It means for Europe and what it means for politics in the US. That's all for this episode of Belabored. You can catch us again in another two weeks. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at This life is hard,
2: so hard I must go. go.
0: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast for the entire archive of past episodes visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belaboured.